0: Welcome to another teachingamericanhistory.org podcast. TH.org is the leading online resource for documents, resources and programs related to American history, government and civics for teachers, students and citizens.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser. I'm professor of history and co-chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government Program at Ashland University, and I want to welcome you all to another edition of Documents in Detail, TeachingAmericanHistory.org's webinar series. In each episode, We do a deep dive into a single document discussing the historical, literary, and rhetorical aspects of said document, while also analyzing its impact on American history, people, and thought. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is a project of the Ashbrook Center, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization based at Ashland University. We provide a variety of programs and resources for teachers of American history, government, and civics, all of which is based on primary sources. Uh, In the next week, because of your presence here tonight, you will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation to prove that (laughs) you're here, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program that we hope you'll share widely. The topics of this year's webinars are drawn from speeches, letters, and writings from the Ashbrook Center's voluminous document database, available at tah.org, and you can participate in the discussion, and I hope you will, by typing your questions into the chat window at the bottom of your screen at any time. The subject of today's program, Thomas Jefferson's 1826 letter to Roger Waitman, and to help us discuss it are Dr. Todd Estes, professor of history at Oakland University. And Dr. Robert M.S. McDonald, professor of history at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Todd, Rob, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us, John. Sure thing. So let's start out by talking about uh, about background. Uh, who's Roger Waitman? What is the occasion for, uh, for for Jefferson writing this letter? And whichever one of you two would like to go first, please do so. Rob, do you want to start? You want to take the first swing? Sure. <laughs>
0: hey, you, you want to go or do me to?
2: Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I thought you heard me. I asked if you wanted to take the first swing. So uh, this is the, the downfall of this, uh, this medium is we don't get to make eye contact in the way that uh, we were True. if we were sitting in the same room. Um, so, uh, but yeah, why don't you go first and then I'll, I'll fill in any, any details that, that remain.
0: Sure. Um, Well, I guess most significantly for the context of the letter, uh, Roger Waitman was was the mayor of Washington, D.C., and he's the one who had invited Jefferson, uh, obviously quite appropriately, to come to D.C. for the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence and the birth of the United States of America. Um, Waitman was one of those uh, kind of interesting characters who had been a a printer and a publisher, uh, I think a newspaper editor, and he was also, if I'm not mistaken, a bookseller. So I think that Jefferson actually had done some business with him uh, to, to purchase books. Um, so Jefferson knew Waitman. They were friendly, I think, if if not quite friends. But Waitman was, was, again, one of those guys who dabbled in a lot of things. But he was part of a growing trend, I guess, in American politics by the 1820s that saw the rise of these uh, sort of newspaper editor uh, journalists uh, slash political types who sort of combined a number of careers or moved easily from one uh, into the other. So, I mean, that's kind of who Waitman was in a in a nutshell. Um, and, and Rob can probably talk a little bit more about their relationship or the context of this letter. Well,
2: sure. So, um, you know, Washington D.C., the nation's metropolis, as as Waitman um, once called it, was uh, going to be host to you know, one of the many celebrations of the 50th anniversary of American independence. And Waitman uh, planned a pretty elaborate uh, set of celebrations for the day. I I was, you know, reading in in some newspapers from 1826, um, you know, just how it was organized. And, uh, you know, there was a parade, there were fireworks at night, there was a banquet, um, speeches were given. So they really put out all the stops. And Waitman um, prepared for this uh, the, uh, the month before, and on June 14th, he sent out a bunch of letters, not just to Thomas Jefferson, um, but to all the living uh, former presidents, as well as uh, the living you know, signers of the Declaration of Independence. And there was a significant degree of overlap because of course, both Jefferson and John Adams um, were signers of the Declaration. A third was Charles Carroll um, of, of Maryland. Um, uh, James Monroe was invited. Uh, and uh, and James Madison was invited, and it's very interesting because um, on July 4th, the, the responses of all these men and all of them for various reasons bowed out, but all of their responses were printed in both of Washington, D.C.'s daily newspaper, the National Intelligencer, as well as the National Journal, and it was kind of interesting to compare the letters. Um, you know, we're here to talk about Jefferson's response, and I'm sure we have a lot to say about it, but um, looking at the responses of, of the others they clearly did not seize the opportunity in the same way that Thomas Jefferson did Charles Carroll uh, for example you know wrote back this kind of grumpy letter saying well I already told New York City no so I have to say no to you and uh, you know John Adams uh, was was greeted in person with an invitation by um, a person who was an officer at Fort uh, Independence in in Boston Massachusetts um, And he wrote a response bowing out. Um, You know, Madison uh, wrote for a bit about how he had heard so much about how Washington, D.C. was growing and prospering. But it was really only Jefferson who sort of turned the focus back to July 4th, 1776, um, and then forward um, into the future to sort of prognosticate about, um, you know, what sort of meaning that they would come to have.
1: Hmm. Very interesting. Well, Let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, about the content of this. And, and, and of course, after, uh, after getting through the, the stuff where he simply says, here's why I can't make it and it's a shame, uh, he really gets into the heart of this uh, by saying, may it be to the world, that is the uh, uh, the, the, the American independence, <laughs> what I believe it will be, uh, the signal of arousing men to burst the chains under which monkish ignorance and superstition had persuaded them to bound them to bind themselves. Uh, this is interesting to me because uh, this, is, this does not sound like the Declaration of Independence. Declaration of Independence does not does not talk about religion aside you know, aside from passing reference to endowed by their creator. Uh, but he really does seem to be making a broadside against uh, against against traditional religion here. Could could you comment on that? What is he? Why does he bring this up? Well, I'll I'll, I'll take
2: the first wipe, I guess. Uh, you know, I mean, I think Jefferson, um, I don't I don't know that I agree with your read that he was making um, taking a swipe against uh, traditional religion. Uh, as, as a whole, I mean, monkish is just, is pretty specific, and I think that Jefferson was thinking about, uh, in some respects, not you know churches in
1: general, but the Catholic Church. In, in particular. <laughs> but but Rob, let me in, let me interrupt you. I'm a Catholic, so that's traditional religion to me. <laughs> right. Well. <laughs>
2: Catholic as well, and and, uh, and you know Jefferson's daughter actually flirted with converting to Catholicism, and uh, you know I think to his credit, he he told her he said, well, don't do anything rash, and uh, you know wait and think on it, and if after you've spent some time thinking about it, you still want to, I will I won't stand in your way. Um, but I think what Jefferson didn't like about the Catholic Church was uh, he had attitudes that were shared by a lot of people in the English speaking world. Um, you know, especially since Britain had basically ironed out um, all of its uh, struggles regarding, you know, whether it was going to be a Protestant or a Catholic nation. Remember that in the Glorious Revolution, um, the winning side was Protestant and it was associated with liberty. And, um, you know, the Catholic Church was the church of uh, divine right. It was the church of, um, you know, uh, kings who had been crowned by bishops and popes and, you uh, You know, it was this hierarchical religion, one that um, emphasized perhaps uh, the the top-down authority of the church, whereas Protestantism was seen as um, something that was, you know, freer because it emphasized uh, generally reading the Bible and thinking for yourself. Um, And and so I think Jefferson had a very typical American hostility to Catholicism, you know, that reflects basic 18th century, early 19th century attitudes. Mm. Um, And and so I I read that as a, a more specific swipe than, than perhaps, you know, you do.
0: Okay. Todd. Yeah. Uh, well, just for the records as we're all naming things here, I'm Episcopalian, so I'm, I'm s- somewhat close, I guess. Anyway. <laughs> um, although well, Merry was, Christmas was, to all. all <laughs> that's right. That was the religion of many of, uh, Jefferson's Federalist rivals, of course, like, like John Jay and, uh, and Hamilton and, and some others. Um, yeah, I think, again, this is, um, uh, I think I would agree with Rob that it's, uh, it's more uh, of a targeted kind of assault or attack here on, on, on the Catholic Church indirectly, and for some of the things that he did not like about that church. And I think we get a sense of how he sees that in the next several lines there, because look at what he contrasts monkish ignorance and superstition to. Um, he, can, he, he contrasts that really to uh, the, the unbounded exercise of reason And freedom of opinion. And I think those are two things that Jefferson obviously deeply valued and really had valued his entire uh, public career, his entire life probably. And those are things I think that Jefferson saw standing in stark contrast to the, uh, the, for him, the problems of this monkish ignorance and and superstition. And so I think for Jefferson, he really set that up as a set up the one as as a foil for the other. And I think that um, here Jefferson is, is really sort of um, contrasting what he thinks is unhealthy and, and, again, sort of an old world quality or feature that he believes the, the independence, the revolution, uh, and, and certainly the themes of the Declaration had sort of attacked and he believes had sort of pushed backward because this is, uh, we can talk more about this, certainly. I mean, I've always read this letter as being very much one that I think of as being in motion because Jefferson is thinking about the past, certainly, and he's he's re- responding to an event and something that's going to occur here in 1826. But it's also a tremendously forward-looking letter, uh, because I think Jefferson is talking about um, how things are moving, eyes are opened or opening, um, and he talks about how, um, again, they're opening the rights of men, and he's also talking about how there's so much uh, ground and opportunity here for others to move on. So, I mean, I think this is, for him, um, it's a kind of particular assault, but I think it's an attack that that has more to do with this larger purpose, which is to really put reason and freedom of opinion, which had always been, of course, just absolutely core principles for him
1: up on a pedestal and, and contrast that with with the other. If if all we knew about American independence were what we got from this letter, I think we could be forgiven for thinking that that. America declared independence from from a Catholic country, right? Rather than rather than Protestant Great Britain, and, and, and this this takes me back to something you said, Todd. Uh, could it be that that this is this is Jefferson responding to the world currents of the eighteen twenties, where by this time Great Britain doesn't look so awful. It's now the the Holy Alliance of the uh, of the European continent. Catholic France, Catholic Austria, uh, well, okay, Prussia's Protestant, Orthodox Russia working together to try to squelch freedom uh, around the world. Mm -hmm. You know,
2: it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think there is a very broad context here that at first glance we might not appreciate. I mean... For one thing, obviously Jefferson is reaching far into the future, you know, giving his prophecy that all eyes are opened or opening to the rights of man, and that you know to some parts sooner and others later, but finally all um, are going to appreciate what dawned upon us on July Fourth, seventeen seventy six. But he's reaching really far back as well, even before the Glorious Revolution. So, um, you know, toward the end of the letter, Jefferson actually uh, gives a shout out uh, to a man named Colonel Richard Rumbold who was executed for opposing King James in 1685. Um, So uh, I'll draw your attention to the part of the letter where Jefferson writes, "Um, the general spread of the light of science has already laid open to every view the palpable truth that the mass of mankind has not been born with saddles on their backs, nor a favored few booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. Um, When Rumbold was executed in Edinburgh in uh, June of 1685, he sort of gave a, a speech from the scaffold. Um, and he said, This is a deluded generation, veiled in ignorance, um, that through popery and slavery be riding in upon them, um, do not perceive it. Though I am sure that there was no man born marked by God above another, for none comes into this world with a saddle on his back, nor any booted and spurred to ride him. So um, this, I think, was. Was a pretty well-known speech at the time. I mean, it appeared in you know many works of, of British history, and and so Jefferson's giving a pretty obvious shout out, um, you know, to this this historical resistance to the Catholic tyranny um, that at that point had dominated Great Britain. And, and you think it would have been recognized as such by his his uh, his uh, his readers? Well, uh, you know, I won't take full credit for that. Uh, Douglas Adair thought so. He, he published an article about it in the William Mary Quarterly <coughs> in 1952.
0: Yeah, yeah. Todd, anything more on this? Yeah, just on that, on uh, the point Rob just brought up, um, one of the bases that uh, Douglas Adair in that article that, that Rob mentioned in William Mary Quarterly for the, the sort of general generally known nature of this um, <clears throat> was, first of all, that Jefferson owned in his library, I think, four or five books in which different versions of that uh, rumbled speech uh, dying Speeches, it was called, um, <clears throat> were present. So Jefferson clearly knew of it and, um, and made reference to it. And those books would be probably the kinds of things that would be available to other gentlemen, uh, North and South as well. Um, may or may not have been read in school as part of an educational program, but certainly could have been read in the way that many gentlemen read books of biography and, and uh, history and things like that, particularly of British history. Um, and the second point, I guess, about the um, uh, Adair, uh, Adair refers to this uh, Samuel Wademan letter, I think, as, as being essentially Jefferson's dying speech. He's obviously not being executed for anything, but it's clearly a valedictory. And it's clearly, for Jefferson, a way of, of talking to the current generation, uh, you know, calling up and raising up the achievements of the past, but also, I think, very clearly calling on the present and future generations to, to carry on the work that's that's underway here. So I think it it really is. I think it makes sense to be read as a as a dying message, and not only because Jefferson is literally about to die, but because this is clearly the summation. I think of a kind of valedictory of, of his entire life and career here. That's really interesting. Um, and you know, just to just to add something, please. if I may, John,
2: uh, to what Todd just said. Um, you know, Jefferson's life at this point spanned back eighty three years. It, it only spanned forward ten days. And um, on the same day that Jefferson wrote this letter to Roger Waitman, June 24th, um, he also wrote a letter to his personal physician, um, Dr. Rodley Dunglison, who was the medical professor at the University of Virginia, begging him to come to Monticello um, and attend to him. He had a chronic intestinal illness. Um, you know, he was, he was bedridden at this point. Um, so I think it, it was, he, he, he knew not only that he was old and in failing health, but his health at this point had taken a decided turn for the worst.
1: Wow, wow. Well, let's talk a little about, uh, about science. Uh, we've, already, we've already mentioned his reference to uh, uh, the, the, unbounded, uh, the unbounded exercise of reason and freedom of opinion, the general spread of the light of science. Why is science so important to Jefferson?
0: Well, I'll I, I just start this and then turn it to, to Rob. I mean, science for Jefferson, I think, was in many ways um, the, the best way to, to study, the best way to discover uh, the, the true uh, core principles that, that guided the world. It's a way to move away from superstition. It's a way to move away from uh, stories and notions and legends and myth and things like that. And it's a way to discover quite a bit about the physical world uh, in, in all of its elements and Jefferson obviously was um, uh, tremendously active as a, I guess, a sort of amateur scientist himself. He was fascinated by science. He read about science. He was always interested in in the works, um, uh, science, and what was going on. He valued it greatly. Uh, and certainly, that's this is for Jefferson. I think not simply a, a subject area that he valued for you know any particular. Uh, I mean, not, not, not only for particular reasons, but he also valued it deeply, I think, because he thought that the process of science, the scientific process of experiment and discovery and investigation and correcting errors, that that was really the way to go to study almost anything that one might find uh, in the world. And it's a way, again, of moving beyond the um, the, the legends and myths and superstitions uh, and things of the past. So I think it's it's both science. As a particular kind of discipline, but it's sort of the method of science, uh, scientific, scientific method that I think for Jefferson uh, weighed so heavily. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly right, and and I would only add that uh, when Jefferson used the word science, I think he had a very broad and and kind of capacious definition um, in mind. I mean, he was you know for a while the president of the American Philosophical Society, and philosophy was a word that. At the time was almost uh, synonymous with science. I mean you know, it was the, the study and the love of, um, of all knowledge. And you know there was a science, I think Jefferson would have argued um, to architecture and a science to oratory and a science to um, botany and you know all of this constituted science. So when he says the light of science, I think really the synonym for that would just be the Enlightenment.
1: Hmm. Sure. okay. Well, we mentioned uh, the the famous phrase uh, being born with, uh, mankind has not been born with saddles on their backs. There are a few, a favored few, booted and spurred, ready uh, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. Uh, Joe Miller is asking, something that I myself was interested in hearing about. Obviously, when we hear that today, we think of slavery, which is going on all around, including at Monticello. Uh, could, could you comment on, uh, on, on whether he may have been, whether he may have had that in his, on his mind when he was, when he was saying this or, you know, helping us to, to understand how we might try to square the, the two. Todd, do you want to jump on that
0: first or should I, yeah, uh, I'll just, I'll just say a couple things. Um, I don't know for a fact. I mean, uh, Rob may, may be much more familiar with this than, than I am. Uh, I think he, he certainly could be referring uh, to the actual institution of slavery as it was uh, growing, developing in the United States. But I think it needn't refer only to that because I think there's a there's a larger kind of, of, of slavery of men enslaving others for various reasons that Jefferson could be referring to here. And in fact, it's the same way in which Uh, back in 1776, and in fact, during the run-up to independence, that so many American colonists attacked the king and parliament and the British restrictions and oppressions against them uh, of accusing them of reducing the colonists to a form of slavery. So I think that concept and that word, uh, it's almost impossible for us today to think about outside of the racial dimension of slavery and the idea of racial slavery, uh, Jefferson may have that in mind here, that may be part of what he has in mind, but I think it needn't be the only thing. And my sense is probably that Jefferson is speaking very, very broadly to any form of enslavement by any oppressive force, whether it's uh, an ignorant monk, to go back to his earlier idea, whether it's a uh, an all-powerful military tyrant or dictator, whether it's an oppressive form of government, uh, whether it's an invading uh, horde of of people, whatever it could be. I think for for uh, for Jefferson, that form of slavery was something that had to be challenged and attacked and pushed back. And, and I think that's what he's celebrating here is that you know that, that can't be tolerated anymore, and it's not being tolerated anymore. And everywhere around the world where mankind has been uh, enslaved in this way, they're now fighting back. Here comes here comes the pushback in a sense. But again, this is really much more. I think of what Rob can can enlighten us on here. Well, no, I
2: I mean, I agree with everything that Todd said, and and I I don't know that I could say it any better. Um, All all I'll add, though, is, uh, you know, it's clear from the text of Jefferson's letter that, um, you know, his audience is not an enslaved audience. He's not speaking to enslaved Mm -hmm. African-Americans. And yet, in Washington, D.C., they had to have been among the audience. They had to pick up the copies um, of the newspapers, those who were literate, and some undoubtedly were, Um, you know. When uh, Waitman read this letter uh, in Washington D.C. on July 4th, um, there had to have been enslaved people within earshot, and uh, you know it's it's kind of um, poignant to imagine how they may have received this and what the Fourth of July meant to them, and you know, it kind of calls to mind uh, the famous. speech by Frederick Douglass. I think he was in in Buffalo, New York, um, shortly after the Fourth of July, you know, decades into the future in the 1850s, I believe. Um, And, you know, he's addressing a very friendly uh, white abolitionist audience, but he, but he, you know, began by saying, "You know, do you mean to insult me by bringing he- me here to, to speak on your on your Fourth of July, your Independence Day? Um, it's a day of freedom for you, but for me, it's just another day, you know, in the continued story of of slavery." So, uh, I hope that that. Todd is right, and I hope that Jefferson did have African Americans in mind, um, and that he wasn't sort of considered considering the American story a, a completed one. We're, we're fine; it's time to you know look beyond our borders uh, for examples of tyranny. He, he had to have known that there were plenty of examples of that right here.
1: What, what I mean, what do we know about the evolution of his of his views on slavery later in his? Later in his career, I mean, we know that he didn't release slaves. He didn't feel like he was, uh, he was, he was in a financial position to do so. Uh, But, but, was 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 were his views on the subject changing, or was he always pretty consistently of the belief that slavery was wrong and was uh, on its on a course for ultimate extinction? So, uh,
2: you know, I'll I'll just take the first swipe at that one and and say that. I think, I think it's very fair to say and accurate to say that Je- Jefferson couldn't free his slaves. Um, you know, By the time uh, he was in retirement, he was deeply in debt. Um, he co-signed a, a loan to the former governor of uh, Virginia and defaulted on it, and then Jefferson was on the hook um, for the amount that was owed. Um, and you know, in his terms, I think he owed something like $150,000 uh, by the time he died and one of the conditions uh, by that point for emancipating slaves in Virginia is that you had to essentially for each person you freed you had to post a, a bond you had to you know not only free the person but um, you know give the government essentially a security deposit um, for fear that they would become indigent um, so Jefferson just couldn't afford that I think it's also fair to say that many of the people uh, who were enslaved at Monticello, uh, were not fully his property because they were collateral, you know, to, to, for his creditors. So I don't think he was in a legal or financial position, um, to even think about doing that Uh, on the general issue of slavery. I'd say that his, uh, attitude about slavery was pretty consistent, but that his, um, ideas about how best to approach the issue of slavery changed. I mean, I think throughout his life, he understood the wrongness of slavery and, uh, In a way that's very impressive given how he grew up surrounded by it. I mean it was a very normal thing for Virginians and it was a very normal thing for him. His first memory when he was two or three years old was being carried on a pillow and looking up into the face of of an enslaved man. Um, So from the cradle to the grave Jefferson is surrounded by this institution. One of the first public acts of his life is in 1769, when he co-sponsors a law in the the House of Burgesses um, that would have made it legal to voluntarily free your slaves. Um, That was voted down. Um, You know, Jefferson, as governor of Virginia, uh, spoke about uh, the possibility of gradual emancipation, that was shouted down. Jefferson, as a member of the Confederation Congress, uh, proposed a measure that would have banned slavery in all of the territory uh, west of the Appalachians and east of the Mississippi River, You know, all the way from the Great Lakes down to the Gulf of Mexico. That failed by one vote. Um, as president, he succeeded in, uh, in ending the international slave trade, um, so that was a rare success. Um, and then when the Missouri crisis came, he kind of shifted positions and if early in his life he thought that the best way to go after slavery was isolating it and containing it where it currently existed, um, by the time you reach the Missouri crisis in 1819 and 1820, he's making the argument that actually it would work better if we diffused it and, um, I don't think that that's a cynical ar- argument on, on his part that merely reflects sort of, uh, you know some people have presented this as a sign of growing Southern parochialism. When you think about where gradual emancipation you know was successful, where it was possible, it was in you know northern states that had a much lower you know population density of enslaved people. So um, anyway, I hope that's not too long-winded of an answer, and I'm sure that there's more that that Todd could add.
0: Well, I, I would just say first, I think Rob did a very good job of kind of explicating an incredibly complex subject that is just filled with controversy. Uh, really from Jefferson's day uh, down to the present. And I think a lot of the the really important work on Jeffersonian scholarship in the last 20 years or so has focused on the idea of Jefferson and, and slavery as an institution, but also Jefferson and his relationship, uh, most obviously with Sally Hemings, but with enslaved persons uh, at Monticello and in general. And, and I guess the one thing I would add to to what Rob noted is just to to maybe kind of put a ball on, on something he said, I think Jefferson was entirely consistent in seeing the institution of slavery as a real problem throughout his public life. Uh, As Rob notes, the context kept shifting, his proposed solutions kept shifting, the way he thought about it and described it kept shifting, but I think he consistently saw this as a problem and an issue. It was one that divided uh, the colonies and then the states. It was one that could split the nation in two. And then the whole question, um, and this is something that that I think consumes is probably too strong a word, but it clearly preoccupied Jefferson in his post-presidential retirement years. And we get the the fullest flowering of this, I think, in his writings on the Missouri crisis, uh, when he uses the famous idea of the the slave bill in the night and how slavery is this uh, this incredibly uh, scary, frightening uh, problem that the nation faces. And if we're not careful, um, this is going to explode. And we, we need to think about ways to contain this and solve this and, and resolve this. Um, so I think Jefferson consistently thought about this um, in personal terms and his own relationships with his own enslaved uh, uh, people at, Mount, at Monticello, but I think also as a as a national problem. I mean, Jefferson just wrestled with the intellectual dilemma of how do you deal with slavery? Can, can you phase it out? Will it take care of itself over time? Is it best to isolate it and concentrate uh, in, enslaved people or, or freed slaves? Is it best to diffuse them in the general population? So all these questions about the expansion of slavery, westward movement, all these kinds of things were very fraught for him. And he did a lot of, I think, very pained wrestling with this. So if, if Jefferson can be faulted for not doing more uh, himself or for abusing his power over his enslaved people. Uh, that certainly is fair, but I think we also should give Jefferson credit for really thinking about this in very broad terms as a kind of national issue and a problem in so many ways uh, and, and so many levels.
2: If, if I could add just two things, one is is an observation that um, perhaps you're not consumed by holiday cheer. Um, Todd, but I think you are preoccupied uh, by it because when you referred to his letter to John Holmes about Missouri, did you catch w- the kind of bell you said? Mm-hmm. You said it was like a sleigh bell in the night. Yeah. Oh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, Jefferson set a fire bell in the which in a world that was built of wood was a, uh, a <laughs> yeah, truly yeah, frightening yeah. thing to hear. Oh, um, sorry about oh, that. I, I, if this had
0: been in, in July, I wouldn't yeah. have said that. <laughs>
2: <Yes>. <laughs> but, but the other thing I'd, I'd, I'd say is, you know, one thing that we've we've left out of this is, um, you know, right there at ground zero of uh, the American experiment. I mean, it was, you know, on July 4th in 1776. <laughs> Um, that the Continental Congress made the decision uh, to strike out from Jefferson's draft of the Declaration of Independence. Um, You know, his charge against George III, that he had, um, you know, prevented colonies from restricting the importation of enslaved people, um, and that, you know, he, that uh, George III had committed treason against the hopes of the world by capturing and captivating uh, distant people who had done nothing to offend the English um, and carrying them in chains against their will um, to a new continent. And I mean, it's, it's a really poignant moment in American history because, you know, while Americans uh, were celebrating um, their own independence and their own liberation from what they described as the, the tyranny and the slavery of British rule, um, they compromised on this issue of slavery. The delegates from South Carolina and Georgia essentially said, if if this component of Jefferson's declaration remains in um, the text, you could count us out. Um, and the Continental Congress caved, and uh, you know
1: removed that passage. So really, kind of a, a poignant, poignant moment. Mm-hmm. As as, as uh, memorialized in the musical 1776. Okay. <laughs> right. uh, what do we know, if anything, about the reaction to this to this letter read aloud? It's published. Did anyone at the time having to say about it approvingly or otherwise?
2: We probably know more than we would have um, because Jefferson's death followed soon thereafter. So of course, you know Jefferson and John Adams both died on July 4th, 1826. And, um, and this you know, was Jefferson's stated wish. Uh, not that he would die on the Fourth of July, but that he would live to see the Fourth of July. And um, you know, on the, the, the night before his death, he was fading in and out of consciousness. And he uh, you know, asked the men at his bedside, Dr. Dunglison and his grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, and his grandson-in-law, Nicholas P. Trist, um, He kept asking, is it the fourth? Um, and they you know, had to say no. Um, and then finally, it seemed to go at any moment around 11 PM on July 3rd, he asked, is it the fourth? And Trist just couldn't bear to let him down. And he told him it was. And then Dunglason offered Jefferson another dose of medication. And Jefferson said to his doctor, having been assured that it was already the fourth, he said, no doctor, nothing more. So the good news is Jefferson lived past midnight. He died around noon on July fourth, um, 1826. Um, and the news of his death reached Washington, DC after the 4th of July. Um, but this letter had already been published um, and then, of course, other newspapers outside of Washington, D.C. and other American cities started publishing this letter, um, and they published it. Um, some of them concurrently with the news that Jefferson had, in fact, died on the anniversary of America's independence. And if you look at um, some of the, the eulogies that are given um, of Jefferson and John Adams, uh, there are a few people who, you know, gave these orations in celebration of their lives um, who, who mentioned this letter and quote from it.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and it just it, it works brilliantly as a kind of part of the eulogy of Jefferson, and, and as Rob notes, published simultaneously with the news of his passing and Adams's as well, uh, led many Americans to remark at the time that this was a a, a providential event. Obviously, uh, the hand of God was at work here. That the two great founders, or two of the great founders, died on the same day, uh, and it happened to be the Fourth of July. So I think this letter. Became part of, of the Jefferson, of Jefferson's immediate legacy, I guess. And it's a great way. It's short. It's brief. It's compact, and it has so many of those great Jeffersonian qualities. Uh, I mean, the way, for example, that he kind of rephrases and I think improves that Rumbold quote mm-hmm. uh, about the the man spurred. Uh, let me let me find it here. The um, uh, where is it here? Uh, mankind been born with saddles on their backs, nor a favorite few booted and spurred. Jefferson kind of subtly as he did so many times took other people's words or concepts and and, and changed a word or two uh, changed the, uh, the, the 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 sentence structure and really made it much better and I think that's one of the things he does here and this is a very fitting letter for Jefferson it just sums up so much of what he believed in so much of his hopes for the country and it's it's a great kind of letter and I think because it served the purpose of being a valedictory from Jefferson at the same time that his eulogies are being given at the same time the news of his death is spreading, I think the timing is, is absolutely perfect for that. And that, I think that probably accounts in part
1: for why this is one of the better known Jefferson letters. Mm. Uh, speaking of, the, uh, of, of the, the death of Adams and Jefferson on, on the same day, uh, it makes me wonder, I think it's fair to say that Adams left office uh, an, an unpopular president. And uh, and I know that of course that Adams and Jefferson mended fences in their uh, in their, their their final years. Was there something of a rehabilitation of Adams' uh, reputation upon the time of his death? I, I I think that we could say certainly that there was. Um,
2: Part, part of it is indicated by the simple fact that John Adams' son, John Quincy Adams, was at that moment the president of the United States. I mean, if John Adams was still held at such low regard, I don't think John Quincy, um, you know, would have uh, succeeded in, in you know gaining the presidency. I almost said one election. Um, that's a little bit more controversial, <laughs> but, but whatever the case may be, um, you know, I think that as as time passed and as the tensions uh, of the bitter feud between the Federalists and the Republicans receded into memory and as this so-called era of good feelings where essentially everyone claimed to be a Jeffersonian Republican, even John Adams's son, um, you know, the, the partisan rancor had melted away and Adams was now viewed, I think, much more as a uh, elder statesman and, and a great American patriot who, at the very beginning of our history um, as an independent nation and, and before that, um, you know, had played such a conspicuous and important role.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I do want to, uh, sorry, Rob, did, did you have anything to add to this?
0: Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think the other thing that's going on here that, that's, that's worth noting is that this is a, a huge period of transition
1: in American history
0: in a lot of ways. And I think it was a very self-conscious one for people because of the fact of the celebrations of the 50th anniversary of American independence, this, this great jubilee. There were celebrations all around the country that year, speeches, dinners, uh, military marches and parades, uh, fets, all kinds of things going on. And Americans were celebrating their past and looking to the future. And on the day itself, you have the death of these two great leaders of American independence in the struggle against the British uh, and two former presidents. So I think there was um, a number of scholars have made this point that there was uh, in some ways an awful lot of anxiety on the part of the rising group of political leaders, including John Quincy Adams, uh, including Henry Clay, including Daniel Webster including the people who would become the giants of the next generation of political leadership, but who at this time, by the 1820s, weren't there yet. And I think it's fair to note that there was probably some great anxiety on the part of many office holders as well as American citizens about whether or not the next generation in the second 50 years could even come close to the accomplishments of the generation of the first 50 years. And so I think even as Americans in 1826— are celebrating the, the Jubilee, this 50-year anniversary, they're commemorating the deaths of Adams and Jefferson. I think they're, they're doing that out of a spirit of genuine celebration and accomplishment and congratulation. But I think there's also undercurrents, uh, I think, of, of some insecurities and uncertainty, some anxiety there about whether or not anybody could ever rise to that level again. And whether anybody can, can quite be there again, and can the next generation that's rising at this time preserve American liberty and freedom through two wars, if those are necessary again, through expansion, through sectional conflict, tension over slavery, any number of other kinds of things, uh, continued scrambles with European nations. All these things, I think, are very real issues, and I think they sort of – that's the flip side, I think, of that celebratory era of 1826 – And and I think the deaths of Jefferson and Adams sort of add a kind of tragic element to it that underscores the poignancy and the anxiety that I think is there. At the same time, there's the congratulation and the celebration. And and if I could
2: add just a couple of concrete examples of the difference that 50 years can make. Um, You know, in 1776, news of the Declaration arrived in Boston on horseback. In 1826, news of Jefferson's death arrived in Boston by steamboat. Um, when, when John Adams was laid to rest, the, the small band of local dignitaries who were present walked a short distance um, to a ribbon-cutting ceremony um, that officially inaugurated the opening of the first stretch of railroad track in America that connected the site of the Quincy, Massachusetts Quarry to the future site of the Bunker Hill Monument. And when Jefferson was laid to rest, um, students from the University of Virginia made the walk uh, from the grounds of the university up the hill to Monticello, and and standing among them, peering, you know, into the the grave of this man who was a fallen pillar of the Enlightenment, um, was a, a, a young man who um, he would end up. Quitting the University of Virginia. Later, he would enroll at the United States Military Academy. He wouldn't graduate from West Point either, Um, but he would gain renown as uh, America's greatest romantic poet. And of course, I'm referring to Edgar Allan Poe. So, you know, when you think about just how different these eras were, um, I think, you know, it was very palpable to the people who were present
1: at the time. Both of your comments lead me to ask what did Jefferson have to say about? America of the 1820s? Uh, did I mean, generally speaking, I imagine he approved of what was going on. But what commentary did he make on the politics or, or, or culture of the age?
0: Well, I'll take the first crack of this and, and pass it to Rob. I, mean, I think it's interesting in these last letters, uh, and, and even we might talk about the, uh, the letter to Henry Lee, which is one of our other documents for night as well. It's interesting that in these last years, Jefferson... Um, is really concerned, I think, with the past, with American history, and with his legacy and his role, and with also trying to prescribe as best he can, knowing that he is about to go off the stage, uh, the the proper form of behavior and action and the way to to think about key documents or think about key principles that he wants the the successive generations of Americans to, to keep in mind. And so I think what's on Jefferson's mind in the 1820s to me at least, as I read this, is really the 1760s and 70s in some ways, mm-hmm. and the 1790s. He's really trying to put his stamp on those errors, on what they mean, on trying to define them, on trying to uh, say it's about these things, it's not about these other things. Uh, these are the principles we fought for, this is what we believed in, This, is, these are the key ideas of the revolution, and I think in the, the Henry Lee letter, um we can certainly talk a lot about this as well. Uh, it's interesting because Jefferson, again, is trying to spell out the principles and the, the object of the declaration. And he says, basically, this wasn't about spelling out brand new ideas. We're not creating some innovative theory on the fly. What that document did was to capture in words what so many people were thinking and maybe didn't have the language for or didn't have the phrasing for it. So it wasn't that we were trying to come up with something brand new and innovative. It was something that we were trying to capture the general spirit of the time. So this wasn't just a rebellious group of, of uh, people in the Continental Congress in Philadelphia who drafted this and foisted on the country. This was something that really was nationwide, Jefferson believes, that, that captured that broader patriot movement. And so it was truly a national welling up of ideas and sentiments that the Declaration simply gave very pithy and very memorable um, phrasing to. So... Uh, again, we can talk more about the Lee letter, and I I certainly want to hear Rob talk about this as well, but I think, to go back to your original question, John, I think Jefferson in the 1820s is not so much invested in the 1820s as as he is rethinking the 1760s and 70s and trying to define those in a particular way for Americans and for, of course, posterity for history.
1: Very interesting.
2: Rob? Yeah, well, you know, great points uh, all, and I I guess I would just add that You know, Jefferson, there's a mix of optimism as well as maybe a sense of alienation um, that he expresses in the last years of his life. He writes a a letter to one friend and, um, you know, says that he feels surrounded by uh, a rising generation um, whom we know not and who knows not us. And if ever there was a time when there would have been a pronounced generation gap, I think this was it. I mean, this was a period, as we've noted, of profound um, technological and economic change um, and growth and displacement. And, uh, you know, increasingly, I think Jefferson feels like he's a a relic of the past. As Todd points out, you know, his focus um, to a large degree is on history and on making um, sure that that history is remembered as, as he remembered it and not as say rival uh, historians like John Marshall, who wrote the life of George Washington um, cast it, you know from a Federalist uh, vantage point. And uh, you know Jefferson spent a, a good number of his retirement years searching for, ver- for friendly historians who would tell the story. Um, he spent a good amount of time preparing his own papers um, in 1821 and 1822. He worked on his autobiography. Um, he arranged, uh, the, the papers, um, slips of the paper that, uh, had on them, uh, sort of anecdotes and stories that he, um, had jotted down soon after they happened. And he arranged those into a collection that a later editor, um, called his Anas. Um, so, I mean, he's very much trying to assemble a documentary record of primary sources, uh, as well as, uh, encourage secondary sources, um you know, that will tell the story um, of America's birth and early development as he remembers it. And I think, you know, that, that concerns him greatly, as Todd pointed out.
1: Well, thanks. Uh, well, the, the, we've, uh, we've already started talking a little bit about the letter to Henry Lee. I think it's a good thing to consider both of these uh, both of these letters together. Um, but when he's referring to, uh, he starts off by saying, with respect to our rights and the acts of the British government contravening those rights, there was but one opinion on this side of the water. That's not right, is it? I mean, I, I had heard that about a third of the uh, the population was uh, in support of independence. About a third was uh, was was loyal to Britain, and about a third simply didn't care. I mean, is is what's Jefferson up to here? Is he misremembering or just being disingenuous?
0: Well, I think he's—he uh, may be misremembering, but I think he's probably being deliberately disingenuous here. I mean, obviously, he knows and remembers how fierce the struggles were uh, between patriots and loyalists, and those who were on the fence. And there was a um, a sizable part of the American population that remained loyal, obviously, to the British, right, up to and through the war. And those—that uh, sort of um, the, the American Revolution is not only a war of independence with the British, it's also obviously a first American civil war, if you will, because it really did uh, divide families and sections and nations and neighbors and towns and villages. And so this is an attempt, I think, to make it seem far more unanimous, far more harmonious, far more of a sort of uncontested uh, movement, this, this groundswell for independence, which certainly describes the patriot side of the equation, but obviously does not describe uh, arguably the majority of the colonists who were either loyalist or sort of unaligned in some way, or went from, from side to side. So I think it's an attempt to sort of um, spin this in a way that makes the, the movement that Jefferson led far more numerous, far more unopposed and far more widespread uh, than it actually was. Uh, and, and probably the, um, you know, post-revolution, uh, more and more people um, came to that point of view and may have seen things that way, or at least wished it to be that way. There's that famous um, uh, anecdote about uh, uh, after the death of John Kennedy, when he was assassinated, uh, Kennedy won with, um, I think, 49.7% of the vote to 495 or something. And when, yet yeah, when people were asked in 1964, how did you vote in 1960?, uh, Kennedy won sort of a posthumous landslide. 60% of the people said, oh, I remember voting for for John Kennedy, which you know, couldn't have been possible. But I, I think it's a way of sort of going back and, and and reworking the past to fit the way you'd like it to be or the way it, uh, it sort of makes the most sense. And that would certainly serve Jefferson's purposes here of trying to unify and rally the country. Rob?
2: Yeah, I, I would just say, I mean, it's interesting. He he sort of clarifies in the, in the next sentence. He's, where he writes, uh, all American Whigs thought alike on these subjects. Um, so if, if he's speaking about American Whigs, you know, Whig to Jefferson meant. Um, supporters of resistance to British tyranny, and by 1776, supporters of independence. But I think you can make an argument that during the course of the war for independence, the number of people who came to support the cause and and who would fall into Jefferson's category of of being American Whigs, you know, definitely grows. And not just because um, some loyalists uh, recant or, you know, move away, um, but because the British, um, and I think this is perhaps something that Uh, we should give full credit to George Washington too. I mean, Washington had the sense that uh, a long war for independence would work to our advantage because um, the longer the British army um, spent on our continent, um, the more time redcoats were uh, on our shores interacting with our people, the more alienated from them our people would feel. Um, the British were notoriously heavy handed in the ways in which they dealt with the civilian population. There were a number of, uh, you know, it's, it is no exaggeration to call them atrocities um, committed against American civilians, um, you know, ports uh, and towns burned to the ground, uh, indiscriminately, uh, you know, horrific uh, assaults upon men and women. Um, and and so you know I, I think the redcoats would have benefited greatly from a, a Dale Carnegie course um, because they didn't make friends and influence people they, they influenced people but they influenced people to, to want to become um, patriots and to resist uh, you know the British
1: Army. Hmm. Um, one final question is where uh, as, as we wrap things up I like to end these uh, these webinars by uh, by asking each of you to. Uh, convince those who are uh, who have been observing or listening in on this uh, on this conversation. Uh, these are uh, most, if not all, teachers. Why should they uh, devote precious class time to having their students read and talk about these documents? Well, I'll go first. I mean, I, I think first of all, these two documents,
0: the Lee letter and the Waitman letter, are, are both short. So they won't take that long to teach to talk about or to have students read. Secondly, I think they both work extremely well side by side with the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. Um, Not that you necessarily want to jump ahead 50 years from the the Declaration, but as a way of sort of thinking about what's to come or how the Declaration is thought about, I think they give us a particular insight from the, the mind of the man who wrote that document. And I think it's always important to know how Jefferson thinks about this, how he describes it, how he defines it, and how he wants other people to think about it. And as we want to think about the Declaration and all the different ways we can read that, all the different meanings and valences that the Declaration has had and has been given over the years, what it means to, say, Thomas Jefferson or white Americans versus, say, Frederick Douglass, all those kinds of things I think are fascinating. And I think one of the essential parts of teasing that out and thinking about the meaning of the document and its significance Is to think about what the author himself said about it and thought about it, and I think these two letters—they're brief, they're significant, they're pithy. Um, I think they're very graspable and relatable, and I think they provide a very nice kind of bookend to thinking about Jefferson and the Declaration and what it means. And I think they can be a great lead-in to the ongoing conversation right down to the present day about what is the meaning of the Declaration. What is the country about? What, are, what, you know, what, what do we mean when we talk about inalienable rights and we talk about the, uh, the pursuit of happiness and, and life and liberty and these kinds of things? These are all obviously crucial questions, not resolved then or now. And I think these two letters we've looked at tonight uh, are a great way to sort of help students think about some of the early voices uh, Jefferson's own about what these documents mean.
2: Rob? Yeah, I remember reading uh, Jefferson's letter to Roger Waitman for the first time as a college student in 1991. And just just think about where we were um, and where the world was in 1991. I mean, You know, the Soviet Union gave the world a great, great Christmas present. On Christmas Day, 1991, the flag of the USSR was lowered over the Kremlin, and the new flag of the Russian Federation was raised up above it. Uh, And this letter at that moment, um, you know, the line that all eyes are opened or opening to the rights of man, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, um, I mean, clearly... uh, at that moment in, in world history um, as dictators were being replaced by, by democracies, um, this prophecy of Jefferson's um, seemed to be very here and, and very now. And you know, perhaps a little bit of distance and time has removed us from that feeling. But I think that if teachers are going to introduce the concept, for example, of American exceptionalism, um, this would be an ideal way uh, to do that, um, you know, there's another document where John Adams, um, to get him involved, says America is the city set upon ale, um, You know, which brings us back to the uh, to the the Pilgrims and the Puritans. Um, when you think about what makes America different, what makes America special, um, to me, there you know there are many things that we could cite, but um, the basis of American nationhood is not a bloodline; it's an idea. Um, It's a a proposition that all men are created equal with certain inalienable rights Um, and and that those rights are not a gift of government, but that those rights are a reflection of our humanity and and a gift from God. And um, that purpose, you know, why does America exist? Um, We know you could read it right there on on the parchment on which is inscribed the Declaration of Independence. Why does Germany exist exist? Why does Canada exist? Why does Mongolia exist? I mean, other people could answer those questions. It's not clear to me why they, they do, except that we have these n- nations around the world. But the American nation um, has a special purpose. And um, it's, it's laid out in 1776, and I think it's amplified in 1826 when Jefferson you know, predicts that, uh, that America's um, great gift to the world is the example that it sets. Um, and the ways in which it inspires others um, to throw off um, you know, the yoke of uh, superstition um, and, and to you know, assume the, the blessings and security of self-government.
1: Wow. What a great way to, uh, to end things this evening. I want to thank both of our panelists, Todd Estes <laughs> and Rob McDonald, for their insights. Uh, and I want to remind all of you who are listening in about the email that you're going to receive uh, you will just click on that if you want to, uh, uh, if, on the link that will be included in that email to receive your particip- your certificate of participation. And if you've enjoyed today's webinar, uh, I ask that you please consider taking an online graduate course through the Ashbrook Center. These are part of our, uh, our, our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. Uh, both Todd and Rob are faculty in that program. You can find more information about our online course offerings at teachingamericanhistory.org, and you can help us spread the word about our webinars, about our one-day seminars, about our, uh, our, our graduate seminars, uh, by sharing the archive link, which you will be receiving by email next week. Please do share that with your colleagues, share it on social media, get the word out. Our next Documents in Detail webinar will be Wednesday, January 23rd, when our subject will be be Abraham Lincoln's speech on the repeal of the Missouri Compromise. At that time, I'll be joined by Dr. Lucas Morell of Washington and Lee University and Dr. Dan Monroe of Milliken University. The recommended readings for that webinar have already been posted. Uh, We hope to see you back here on January 23rd, but for now, good night. And from all of us at Ashland University, we wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.
0: Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs, at TAH.org slash webinars, or on iTunes by searching for TeachingAmericanHistory.org.